Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Tuesday. It is September the 19th, and we are streaming live from Liberty Hill, Texas at 0930 Eastern Time. It's 830 here in Texas, America. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a great guest today that we are going to get into a story that is not good, but it is compelling. I think you guys are going to really appreciate that. Before we get started, I want to say thanks quickly to our sponsors, particularly our friends over at Patriot Coolers. So let me launch into this there. Folks, Patriot Coolers, you know them, you love them. If you are not buying a Patriot Tumblr, what are you doing? Go to patriotcoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, promo code Kyle. We'll get you 10% off. You'll get free shipping if you spend more than 50 bucks. Check them out. They have been supporting our show since at least February, since we actually started going and doing this thing in a real way. And we're really appreciative. Great company based in Houston, Texas. Good people there. We've got a family connection on that route. That route. So uh, by all means, check them out. If there's something you're looking for on there, whether it be a hard cooler, a soft pack, a day pack, Cooler parts, what is that all about? That means you can actually replace some of the things that may wear out. Check out patriotcoolers.com. I know you guys see them over on True Social as well. They are, uh, they're where you are as well. So check them out. Promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Let's uh, let's get started here right away. I don't want to waste too much time. I want to uh, be respectful to our guest time. We have Sarah McAbee on today. She is the, oh, I had this in front of me. Tell me, you work with the Stand in the Gap Foundation and she is uh, she is a wife of a J6 political prisoner. We're going to hear her story. And thanks so much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for having me on, Kyle. It's my pleasure. So what we always do is we always ask people to kind of tell us where they're from, their, their kind of life story up to this moment, if you would. Can you tell me where you grew up and um, and kind of catch me up from, from zero to here? Yeah, for sure. I grew up half my life in East Tennessee. It's where I met my husband. We've been together for 14 years, married seven of those. He was a um, high, we were high school sweethearts. He played, uh, went and played college football. And then we got married and went into the real world. He was a law enforcement officer. And I worked in corporate America as the vice president of a company. Um, Everything seemed pretty normal. We were a normal American family until about two years ago. And what year did you guys get married? Uh, 20... Well, what's that been? 2016? You're doing yes. This? 14 years ago, you said? No, we've been together 14 years. Been together 14 years, married in 2016. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I yes, do the same yeah. thing with my wife. We never know what year it is. In fact, I've, <laughs> I've, I've missed something like eight out of the 10 wedding anniversaries we have. <laughs> you know how that goes? That's, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that's pretty normal. So you get like, you know, early on, you're like, oh, this is so great. You're in the honeymoon stage. And then it's like life happens, you know, and you're like, all right, I, I get to go to bed with you every night. Like we do life together. It's good. That's right. Yeah. You do life. And then you look around and you go, I think our anniversary was last week. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, do you two have children? Uh, no kids. And you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, I say, thank God. But then at the same time, like our lives have been put on hold drastically and we don't know what the future looks like. So it's like, Thankfully, they're not in this mess with us. But what does the future look like? We yeah. don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit about your husband as a man. We're going to get into his J6 story as well. But I want to know what kind of man is he? You know, what, if you were high school sweethearts, you've known each other a long time. So tell me how he was when he was growing up. Yeah, so he was just your all-American boy in high school. Um, he was involved with a bunch of different community activities. He played every sport under the sun. Um, and then he went off to college to play football, got a degree in business. And then when he got out, he just realized that his heart was in law enforcement. He had done some programs growing up um, in East Tennessee, an explorer program is what it was called. And so he did that all through school. And then when he got out into the real world, he just felt like he wanted to be a public servant. His heart was serving people. And so he got into that. He started um, for the state of Tennessee. And then when he went down to counties at that point, and he actually served most of his time in Georgia in Cherokee County, which is kind of an interesting story um, talking about January 6th, because it was the county right beside Roseanne Boylan. And that's who he um, tried to save that day. But when he was a law enforcement officer, um, he received life-saving awards. Uh, he had an officer, unfortunately, pass away in his arms, his partner, and then um, he also saved an inmate's life. And so he was just your normal, who you would want to serve in your community. What do you think his uh, his impetus was getting into the public service? You said he wanted to do that, but did he ever tell you what the, the idea was behind it? 
No, he's just always had a heart, a servant's heart. Servant leadership is who he is. Um, he would take his shirt off his back and give it to anybody. That's just, you know, I've seen him give money out of his pocket to strangers, homeless people, um, people that he just felt in his heart needed. You know, he's been very blessed in his life, he said. And so he's always willing to go the extra mile for people. Did he grow up as a wealthy guy? He absolutely did not. He um, he grew up very poor. And so money's no object for him in the aspect of his joy comes from helping people and just doing what he calls this, the Lord's work, um, being the hands and feet of Jesus. And I, I truly believe that's why he's been so blessed is because he he does that. He does God's work. You've mentioned God. You've mentioned Jesus now. Tell me a little bit about uh, Christian faith in your life, in your house. I don't, I, to be honest with you, I don't know how people do it without God. Um, life is very rough. And, and the Lord says when you become a Christian or you're born again, life doesn't get easier. You actually become, you know, more apt to be persecuted. But I think, you know, especially in the way that America is right now and our culture, I don't know how you get through the day without having some type of faith and hope that things are going to change. And we aren't of this world, um, but we do have to partake in it because we do live in this world. We certainly do. And it seems like a pretty fallen world right now. Tell me about the mindset in your household in 2020, let's say the COVID lockdowns, if you can kind of walk us through you know, what your experience what looked like on that. And then maybe as it came to the decision time to go to Washington, D.C. for, and your husband's name is Ronald, his middle, what's his middle name? Colton? Colton. He goes by Colton. He goes by Colton. Okay. So yes. Yeah. Tell me how your house looked. Yeah. So we've always been very political. Um, it actually started back in the Obama areas. And and I just realized when I was actually in high school, I started to watch different conspiracy videos. I love conspiracies. <laughs> and I always say that I would rather know than be blindsided if like the truth or anything like that were to come out. And so I always like I, I thought conspiracies behind Sandy Hook and 9-11 and all these things that just didn't seem to add up. And so I was one person to always do my own research. And then my husband also being the same way, not as much as me, um, but he also never took anything for face value, right? And so then when COVID had hit, we were actually in Europe when Trump was closing the borders. And so we had to get home on a red-eye flight. Like we had gotten home just hours before midnight had struck where we didn't really know what was going to happen. And they made it sound like it's going to be this big green monster and there were going to be people lying on the streets and just this terrible thing. And then come to find out it was like the flu. And so we came home. I worked in the entertainment industry. So concerts, Broadway shows, films. That came to a screeching halt really quickly. And so we realized that our life was going to change. Um, luckily, I stayed on for a, a period of time before the summer of love happened. And then the summer of love came. And my husband was on standby to go to Atlanta. Because in the time, we lived just north of Atlanta. And when he came home that night, I said, I don't want to live this way. At the time, he was 25, and um, I was like, you know, I, I don't want you to come home in a box. I don't want you to get in trouble for doing what you do and what, you know, because he's a person that runs into action. That's just what he was trained to do. And so, you know, there was a lot of things. There was actually a shooting that had happened with a cop in a Wendy's drive through in Atlanta during that time period, and that cop ended up behind bars and for just simply doing his job. And so I was very fearful of that. And then the election came and went, and we knew that it was stolen right from under us. And he felt in his heart that um, he needed to stand up, and he, and he did that on January 6th. And we can get into that, but unfortunately, they came for him. And that was my worst fear when he was in the law enforcement field for him to be doing his job and them to turn it around on him. And that's exactly what happened. What in your house, what were the discussions about a stolen election? You said you knew it was right away, it was stolen. What sort of... Um... Back and forth that you guys have was there any you know debate whether that was the case uh no it was just a lot of how can we continue to allow this to go on in america we knew how much hatred there was towards trump and and we didn't like trump for like the person he was we did we didn't mind that but we liked him for his policies and that he was an average american that he wasn't a politician he spoke the way the average American spoke. He didn't mind calling people out. And that's what we needed. America is a business, and it needed to be ran by a businessman. And so the last four years of our life were incredible, you know, gas and food and all these things that affect the American people on our level, taxes and schools and all of that. And then to have that just ripped away from us, we didn't know what the future was going to look like from that point on. 
So I, I remember that that shooting that happened in the Wendy's drive-through as well. And I remember seeing it right at the time I was working for the FBI and it scared the heck out of me in the way it probably scares all law enforcement officers who are doing the right thing, who see someone steal a, a taser and run off and then you got to do what you got to do, which is, you know, they made that decision, I feel like. Uh, did, did your husband ever talk about uh, deadly force scenarios? Did you guys ever discuss, you know, what it would look like if he had to do something like that? Th that was your big fear? Um, no, I'm not somebody that lives in fear. And so I never like we never breached that conversation of, oh, what would happen if you ended up in jail? Right. Because I just never thought I knew there were bad people in this world and there were bad things that could happen. I just never thought they would happen to us. It makes sense. It's it's a really difficult thing to see if you live in that world. Uh, my wife and I have that conversation on the on the regular. It turns out now, uh, and and I think people like you and, and Colton kind of are the example of what we have to look at, right? So let's let's talk about the mindset. He he went to the protest at January sixth. This would be right after the end of twenty twenty. Um, were you there as well? I was not. I was at home. Mm -hmm. And what what drove him to go there? Um, well, actually, it was a friend at the time that had asked him to go with him. Um, he was actually in a car accident nine days prior where he rolled his truck 12 times. Only by the grace of God did he live through that. So that's how he was able to go because he was off work at the time for that. And so seeing the videos, he's holding his arm. He had broken his shoulder in that car accident. And so that was um, I was nervous for him to go just simply for that reason of, I knew how he was being a cop, his back's always to the wall, always reading the crowd. And with a broken shoulder and being in, in physical therapy for that, I was worried just, just about his physical well-being of being there. But I also trusted the person that he had went with, which um, turned out to be a not so good thing. Um, but you know, I believe everybody has um, consequences for their actions, good or bad. And I think this has been a very telling time in our life in a lot of aspects. Not only has our government been exposed for what they've been able to do to their own people, but the people in our lives as well. So I've seen the video. I know a lot of people probably have not. Um, I've probably seen more January 6th stuff than, than most. Can you walk us through the story of what your husband got involved in that day and what the allegations were against him? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he's at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel and you see him off to the side. He's just standing there. There's a lot of chaos that is going on and he sees an officer down on the ground and he has no idea why that officer is down. He just simply sees that one of his brothers is on the ground. So he looks around and he says, you have a man down and they're not doing anything about it. And so he goes around the barrier, goes to pick up this officer. When he goes to pick up this officer, there's a, a cop that comes out and, and strikes him with a baton across the ribs in the um, arm and his broken shoulder. And he pops up and he throws his hands up, simply open face palm. And, and he tells him, I'm one of you. I'm helping you. And he goes back down to pick up this officer while Lila Morris is beating Roseanne right off to the side of him. And so he's yelling at her, stop killing that girl. He's trying to help. Him and the officer fall down the stairs together because another protester had got a hold of his leg, the officer's leg. So he's over top of them for about 20 seconds. You can see he's not laying on him because you can see him on the body camera. And he's yelling at the crowd to stop. The crowd's calling him a traitor. Why are you helping him? And uh, the officer says, get off of me. He says, I'm one of you. I'm helping you. He says, I know, I know. Help me up. He rolls him on his side, takes him back up to the line of duty. By that time, Roseanne Boylan's body had been moved away from the officer that was hitting her. He goes to find her, looks through a bag of medical supplies for a mouth-to-mouth -mouth piece. The, the crowd then decides to pick her body up, go back to the line of duty. And when they get to the line of duty, he starts to give her chest compressions. And then he's pulled off of her as they drag her away. And then he's standing there in such dis disbelief about what just happened in front of him. He's holding his arm, his shoulders hurt. And there's an officer that's named Stephen Sagemont that watched this entire thing go down. And he thanks him twice for his help that day. And then a couple of seconds later, they start spraying him with pepper spray. He says, I'm not hurting anybody. Stop spraying me. The crowd comes up. They are now super mad at the line of cops for doing what they had done to Roseanne. And he's just standing there defenseless, holding his arm. He's in, the, in a defenseless position. He has his hands up like this. And the cop who had thanked him puts his arm around him says, I got you, man. And then the crowd kind of disperses. A civilian comes up so he can go get help for his shoulder. And then that's it. That whole thing lasts about seven minutes. Seven minutes of his life. And then since then, when was he arrested? 
August 17th of 21. Okay, so a couple months afterwards, eight months after this event, seven months after this event, he's taken into custody. And has he been in custody since that time? Yes. And where is he being held? Uh, currently, he's being held in D.C., the D.C. Gulag. He has been moved seven times in six different facilities across America. Talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, so when he was first apprehended, there are no uh, U.S. Marshal holding facilities in the state of Tennessee. So he actually went to Kentucky while we were doing the bond hearings um, in the Middle District of Tennessee. And during that time period, he it was about a month that he was held in Kentucky. Then he went to Lexington, Kentucky where then he was flown from Lexington to Atlanta to Oklahoma. He was held in Oklahoma for a couple of weeks and then got transferred to Washington, D.C. He was there for almost a year, and then he was assaulted while he was in the D.C. jail. And so their way of taking care of it um, was to kick him out of the facility. And so he went to two different facilities in Virginia and then ended up just recently back in April. They moved him back to Washington, D.C. What's the experience uh, when you guys talk you know, his treatment and uh, the conditions and so on? Um, well, it's very nerve wracking for him to be a cop and be on the other side of the wall. So when he was everywhere except for Washington, D.C., um, he always had to watch, watch his back, sleep with one eye open. And um, but when he's in Washington, D.C., all these guys are January 6th um, people. And so they knew who he was before he even went in there. And so he's, he's safe in there. And so for me, that gives me peace of mind. But like when he was in Oklahoma waiting to be transferred, thank goodness it was the night that he was being transferred, but they found out that he was a cop. And so he called my dad, who's like his dad. And my dad said, you just don't go to sleep, son. You stay up. And then they ended up coming to get him a couple of hours later, but there was no guard in that pod. There was 30 men, you know, some waiting trials, some in there for murder, these terrible, heinous crimes. And yet now he's a cop that's on the other side. And so, as you know, you know, one of the things that they call it is diesel therapy. And I think that's a very real thing, especially for him being a cop, is constantly having to be moved and watching his back because he can't trust anybody that's on the other side of the wall. I'm just watching our live chat right now, and some people are not familiar with the story of Roseanne Boylan, which I think plays into at least the area and what was happening at the time. Can you give people kind of a primer on Roseanne's story and what happened to her? Yeah, so she was at the Lower uh, West Terrace Tunnel as well. She walked into the tunnel um, about 10 minutes before the entire situation went down. And in the tunnel, there were so many people. There was um, gas being sprayed. And they had sprayed so much gas in the tunnel, it was literally like they had sucked the air out. And so there was a mass um, escapade to leave the tunnel. And when they were doing that, people were just falling on top of each other. So there was a pileup of people right before you got to the stairs. Roseanne Boylan being one of the ones that was on the bottom. Uh, Philip Anderson being another one, and he was drug out. Tommy Tatum was another one. And Roseanne Boylan was unconscious after so many people had been lying on top of her. And she was uh, coughing, and her friend was yelling, she's dying, she's dying, we need to get her out of here. And um, while she was down, the people started to get off of her. She was lying on the ground unconscious. And Lila Morris took a stick um, that one of the protesters had in the crowd and hit her three times over the head. And um, I don't know if that's what killed her, but I do believe it didn't help the situation. And you could see when they brought her body back into the Capitol, she did have um, bruises on her face. In the video, you can see her um, lying on the ground. Her face is blue. Her nose is bloody. Ear, um, ears, there was blood coming out of her ears. And so, you know, as a trained officer, you're not you're you're trained to help people, right? And so Lila Moore certainly didn't do that. There was an unconscious, unarmed woman lying on the ground, and her objective was to beat her over the head. You have any instinct why that was? From looking Hate, at it? I believe. You know, it's like I think there I do think a lot of people were set up that day. Um, and they were just reacting, but I believe you have to take personal responsibility for your actions, regardless if you felt like you were set up that day and she wasn't hurting anybody. There was no need for that sort of, um, there was no use of, there was no use of force continuum, right? I mean, you could have yelled at her and she wouldn't have responded because she was lying on the ground unconscious, but you don't jump to something as beating her for not doing anything. You know, it's the same thing like Michael Bird. They just completely jump their use of force continuum and go to something as, as deadly weapons. Um, and, and people died that day because of that. 
Let's talk about Colton's uh, reaction when he got home. It was probably a very chaotic moment. Uh, what was his trip from D.C. to home? What was that like? Um, so he actually called me right after it happened and told me everything. And I was watching it on TV. And so he kept telling me there was a woman that died, like I was trying to save her. And I was like, I saw the woman die. She was executed on TV. And he was like, no, Sarah, I never went inside the Capitol. There was a woman who was beat to death by the cops. And I was trying to save her life. And I couldn't wrap my head around it for the longest time until April when the, the news started to come out about Roseanne. And then it was, I never not believed my husband but I didn't have any evidence to go behind what he kept telling us. And so um, I actually found not too long ago a letter that he had wrote, you know, as a, as a trained officer, you write reports on everything that had happened not long after it. So you remember all the things, all the little details that later on you wouldn't. And that's exactly what he had did. And so his story has never changed from the time that it happened on January 6th when he called me, when he was walking away, finally got service walking back to the hotel to today. Everything has been the same. When he first got home, what sort of conversations were you guys having about that day and about the future? Um, so we never really thought that it would look <laughs> like it does right now, right? He had told me what happened, and I believed he had jumped into action to help that day. I never thought that he would be persecuted for doing so. And so we never had that conversation of what it looks like if the FBI came and raided our house, if he was apprehended. I just... You know, I believed that the government was nefarious to, to do this, but I didn't think there would be not enough good patriots or good people in uh, the government to say, OK, we will continue to allow this. I would have thought they said, you know, you wouldn't let us do it to your people. You're not doing it to ours. But here we are two and a half years later. Did Colton have an opinion about uh, working with federal agencies? Did he have any experience working with feds? Um, no, I mean, he did. There were like times that he had to work with it on a county level, but he never like had, you know, feelings one way or another. I mean, as you know, in every agency, there's good and bad. And so he definitely would talk about, you know, like not thinking like people doing things by the book or doing it the right way. But he never, um, no, he never really had that, that sort of opinion other than just the person themselves. I want to get into the specific indictments that he faced. I'm, I'm looking at the indictment here. It was a superseding indictment. So initially they, they set him up with a, a particular set of charges and then they brought him in on additional charges in, when was that? It was that uh, last year? Yes. So they did a superseding indictment. He's listed in with a, a number of other people, uh, Jeffrey Sable and Peter Stagger and, and a couple of others. Um, what was some of these charges are pretty wild. Like they claim that he was part of something, but they say there was a dangerous weapon, a baton, a flag, a crutch, et cetera. It's like they, they sort of listed this, like they threw the kitchen sink at him. When you guys were reading these indictments as they came out the first time and the second time, what was the instinct and what was the reaction to it? Um, it's very interesting. They're very contradicting. Uh, like you said, he was one of nine. He's actually the only one to take it all the way to trial. All the other ones have pled out. And unfortunately one gentleman on the indictment passed away while awaiting trial. Um, he was out. He was not in jail when he passed away. He died of natural causes. Um, but what a way to pass, you know, when your life is in limbo. It's just horrifically sad. Um, he didn't know any of these individuals. They just happened to all be around each other at the Laurel West Terrace Tunnel um, until he went to D.C. And then some of the guys were being held there. So that was the first time he had actually met anybody on his indictment. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're reading the charges, you're like, this is crazy. They say that he... Um, a baton is one of them, right? right? And you watch the videos. The baton was laying on the ground, and he knew the crowd was getting rowdy, so he picked up the baton so nobody else would use it. And then when he, he had it for four seconds, and when he jumped into action, he dropped it. He never uses the baton other than holding it. And then another deadly or dangerous weapon is the motorcycle gloves that he was wearing. Never uses them. They acknowledge that he never uses them. He had every opportunity to strike the officer when he was pinned on the ground with him never struck the officer. So they're charging him every time he went to pick up that officer, they charge him with assault with a deadly or dangerous weapon. But they admit that he never assaulted the officer and that he never used the gloves. So they charged him for for his attempts to help the guy up because he has gloves on. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, that's correct. And we're seeing I think we're seeing the gloves in this uh, body cam. Yes, footage, correct? this is him. Yes. So as he reaches down, each of these is a an assault, and all he it looks like he's sort of pushing people back and away. He's kind of doing like a body cover there. 
Yes. And the and the officer came back and acknowledged this after the fact uh, and says thank you. Um, actually, this officer right now is saying, get off me. And he says, I'm helping you. The officer says, I know, I know, help me up. So that's when he rolls him over to the side and he's helping him up back up the stairs. There is an, a third officer at the very end of the video that sees the entire thing that goes down that thanks him for his help that day for helping his brothers. And where are those officers when it comes to the defense? Um, that's a good question. I do know two out of the three will be subpoenaed for trial. Um, I don't know about the third one yet. I'm not really involved in that deeply matter of the legal. I do talk to the attorneys, but um, we know that this is a losing battle regardless. I do think that it would be very hard for them to take the stand when we have the evidence and the voices pulled from it with captions on the video to say, you know, was he helping you? Did you say thank you? It would be perjury for them to sit on the stand and ignore those facts. That's fair. You just said it's a losing battle. Tell people why that is. Uh, right now in Washington, D.C., it's a 99.4 conviction rate on January 6 cases. And as you saw with the Whitmer cases in uh, Michigan just this past week that they had uh, three acquittals and two mistrials. And I think that's the exact reason that they won't grant a change of venue to any of these January 6 defendants, because they know that even if they cross the river and went to Alexandria, that it goes down from a 99.4 conviction rate to a 60% conviction rate. And that's simply just not even 10 miles away from DC. But DC is not a jury of anybody's peers. And actually the people that sit on the jury are named victims in these cases. So you go rob a bank and you hold hostages. None of those hostages would ever sit on your jury pool, except for in Washington, D.C., they are allowed to be in the jury pool as named victims in cases. I've talked to Bill Shipley about this. He's a defense attorney that's handled a number. He's a former AUSA a federal prosecutor. And one of the things he mentioned is that there is a process that is set up so that they actually cannot, the judges are actually not entitled to allow a change of venue based on the way that the appeals circuit works there. Have you guys talked through that this is a, this is a, a an appeals requirement? There's no way that you can play this thing out and, and have a success at the lower level? Is that part of your conversation? Yeah. Yeah, so I actually had a very um, high-end attorney look at me and said, Sarah, why are you spending so much money on private attorneys when you haven't even gone to trial yet? They're going to bankrupt you going to trial. They, as in the government, I, I believe every attorney should be paid for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. But they, as in the government, is going to bankrupt you before you even go to trial. So then you have no money for sentencing and appeals. And I think that's what they want. Clearly, we're not winning in the district court. So the next step is the circuit court. And if you're not going to win there, and then the next one is the Supreme Court, where I do know some of the charges right now are currently sitting on the docket. So what is the theory with that? Why, why spend all the money up front if you know that it's a losing battle there? Um, there is no really thought process behind that. Usually in, uh, when something happens like this, if it's not related to January 6th, you go and get the best attorney, right? Because you know that that's going to be the person that fights for you. And, and especially in a case like Colton's, you want somebody who is well-educated because he was a law enforcement officer that day. He has the evidence that plays in his favor, but the government is trying to overcharge and overpunish him. So you need somebody with the, the knowledge to be able to fight this system. But it doesn't matter. So now we are going to trial. We have a public defender uh, because we decided to save our money for appeals because we are prepared for him to be convicted on every charge. OK, so you have prepared for that possibility or maybe eventuality. Um, is his situation, as far as you know, unique law enforcement officer, current law enforcement officer being charged with violence against other cops, even though there's body cam footage saying otherwise? Um, I think his case is very unique in January 6th um, as a whole because I haven't seen any case like his where he could be completely innocent on all the charges. You know, you want to charge him with trespassing, then slap a trespassing misdemeanor on him and let's move on with our life. Um, but there are other cops that were there, off-duty cops on January 6th that have had the book thrown at them, but they don't have the evidence that plays in the favor um, like Colton does, where literally it's on video, cops thanking him. And there's even a video that hasn't, um, that'll be admitted into evidence where it, they are inside the Capitol, all these cops are after this happens. And they're talking about the cop laying on the ground, who's Officer A.W. And they're talking about what's going on and how the protesters um, released him back to the line of duty. And an officer says, no, there was undercover, undercover cops helping him. And all of that is on video. What do you think that says? 
Um, you know, at first when we pulled uh, the audio from this video, the, the gentleman that did it, did it said, you, you know, look up what the different, like what a covering cop is. And if you look at what a covering cop is, it's basically the second person that is watching the other cops back. And um, that's what I think that they thought Colton was. I don't think that they realized they knew that there were undercover um, agents, undercover cops, all these people in the crowd that day. And because there was so much chaos going on, I think that some of them thought that he was undercover working that day. Even though he I mean, he's wearing a, a vest. Is that is that right? He had yes. a vest on and yeah. identified him as a sheriff's deputy. Yes. He just didn't have his um, his department on there. It simply said three percent right. or it was something to that effect. Yes. Is it, there was a there was an emblem on there. I, I was trying to recognize it. Um, yes. So they, you think that the the officers there believed he was part of the uh, like a cover team that was trying yes. to help people out. Uh, yeah, and and like I said, that that's nothing that I can um, say in stone. Sure. But that's definitely what it seemed by their conversations that day that they knew that he wasn't hurting anybody by them thanking him, saying, "I know you're an officer, you're trying to help," and then their conversation that happened um, inside the Capitol after it all went down. Sure. This is so I always tell people I, I feel like the the events of January 6th are, are an American Rorschach test. Are you familiar with the, the Rorschach test, the, the concept no. of them? It's your classic ink block test. It's where they take a piece of uh, a paper and they put some ink on it. And they fold it in half and it squishes out and then they show it to people and they say, what do you see here? And it seems to me that when you look at January 6th, if I show you those events and I say, what do you see here? People will tell you an awful lot about the way they see our country and the way I see, they see politics <laughs> and some other things that uh, that are very revealing. How have people treated you as sort of a, a walking embodiment of that Rorschach test? Um, you know, our community doesn't stand behind us, which is very sad to say. Um, his agencies won't even speak to me. I do believe that. I do know that the FBI went to them prior to them apprehending him, all of the agencies that he worked for. And I do believe that they said, you know, to shut up. I do know that the agency that he worked for on January 6th, um, I know somebody that works there. And the day after he was apprehended, the um, high-end officials came in and said, do not talk to Sarah, do not talk to his family. Um, it's an ongoing investigation. And, you know, two years later, you would think that you would have people that would stand up for him and say, he was my partner, he was my friend, my colleague. Um, you know, he never left any agency without them saying, you're always welcome here. And yet something like this drastically happens, you don't have those people that are standing behind you, not only his, um, you know, agencies, but our, our community, you know, we have a bunch of rhinos, I guess, in Tennessee, and they, they don't even do anything to help him. I had a meeting with our congressional member, um, and the only I feel like the only reason that he met with me a year and a half later was because I had somebody from Trump's administration help me get the meeting. And he sat with me for about 30 minutes, and it seemed like somebody in his office knew more about it than he knew. And that's his own constituent. And it's just, for, for you to not stand up for somebody in that caliber, you know, we don't even need to discuss the events of January 6th, but what's happened since then, that they're overcharged and overpunished, anybody should be able to get behind that because these are rights as an American that are just being squandered. I want to dig into the the concept of the agency not standing behind him in any way. Um, usually when something happens to a police officer, that's the first thing that happens. The, we, we rally around those that are on our team. Uh, we, we come out and say, look, the investigation is ongoing. That's fine. And yet it's my opinion that this person is a good person. These are my good experiences with them. You're saying you, you experience the opposite of that, a complete cone of silence. Yeah. And I think it's because it's so political. You know, I've had so many people say that they don't want to touch this, you know, attorneys or whoever it might be, they don't want to touch it because it's career suicide, because it's so political. Um, this isn't your just average, you know, uh, police line shooting or something happening in the field. It happened at the Capitol on January 6th as an off-duty officer. And so you're right. You would think that, because I know that Colton would have done this for anybody, even if the agency said, you know, don't talk to these people, he would have done it because he, he knows what in his heart is right. And for them to not do that for him, it is disturbing because you think that these people are on your side and would support you. You know, regardless, you don't even have to talk about the events of January 6th, but just say, this is who I knew Colton to be. And they won't even do that. Can we, um, 
Can we zoom out just a little bit and and uh, think about this from a larger perspective? What does it say about law enforcement in general? Everybody has the sense that uh, given the givens or if push came to shove, cops would do the right thing. They would do the right thing for their partner, for the country, for this culture. And you guys are experiencing something that is sounds like the opposite of that, that they were they're not coming out and speaking up. You know, I think people um, do things that benefit themselves. And I think that's just the selfishness that is in us and um, in the human side of us. And if it's not going to benefit them, it's not going to benefit their agency. It's going to hurt their family, hurt them. Then they are timid to do it, just like you've done as, as being a whistleblower. You would think more people, I'm sure, feel like you, but they are terrified to stand up and do something because it might affect them. And I think that's part of the issue here is that it, they don't want it to affect their family or their career. What does that say about our country right now, though? I, that we have a bunch of ca spineless cowards that won't stand up and actually do something. And I think that that's, that's part of the problem is that we continue to allow this to happen. Because if we, the people, would stand up and say, we're not allowing this to happen anymore, or 100 million people didn't go to work tomorrow, or a couple of million went and sat in Washington, D.C. and said, we're not leaving until we air our grievances and you actually do something about it. But people are too fearful to even do that. You think fear, cowardice, those are the things that are keeping us from being able to realize that potential? I absolutely do, because we outnumber them completely. Um, but we've lived in this world where we've been lulled to sleep and believe, don't question authority right? Because they're on our side, they're doing what's best for us. And they're absolutely not. And this corruption runs deep. And it's not only affecting, you know, January 6th, it's affecting people that have had their children taken and sex trafficking. It's happened to people that have lost their jobs because of the COVID mandates and, and people in the border that we're having our country overran. We're, there's a lot of battles that are currently being fought on different fronts, but we have to put our differences aside and join together as one, because at the end of the day, we're all Americans and we're trying to save our country. We saw a picture a minute ago, Ryan flashed it up on the screen. You went out and testified. What were you testifying about and how was that received? I was asked by Matt Gates and um, his team to testify at a January 6th field hearing on June 13th in Washington, D.C. Is that Jerry sitting was, next to you there? Yes. Um, it was Brandon Schrocka, um, John Strand, Jerry Perna, and then two attorneys as well. And we each had five minutes to testify. And, you know, in my testimony, I talked about 18 U.S.C. Section 4, where it talks about knowing of a felony. And so it's on record that four protesters died that day, um, that they need to investigate this because there's been no investigation into January 6th, a true investigation. You had the sham committee doing whatever they wanted and then they destroyed half of their evidence. Mm -hmm. But you've had no true investigation into the treatment of these individuals that are being held into the four protesters that day. And, you know, I've, I've had a conversation with a Capitol Police officer that said, well, you know, Yogananda Pittman is in, in charge of all this and she needs to be held accountable. And while I agree with that, it needs to go up the chain. But people also need to be held uh, responsible for their actions that day. Michael Byrd killing Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne, or um, Lila Morris killing Roseanne Boylan. All of these people need to be held accountable because they, sh they sh yeah, a lot of people were set up that day. I will agree with that. But you have to take personal responsibility for your actions, whether they are good or bad consequences. I think it's really hard for people to kind of divorce themselves of their emotions about this day and kind of look at it objectively. But you're right. There hasn't been an, an unbiased look. To your knowledge, has there been an after action done by the Capitol Police to say what went well and what went wrong? No. And actually, the Capitol Police, I'm sure you know, operate with impunity. And so everything that they do is internal. There's no external organization that comes in to review anything. And so, you know, I heard it best when I went to have congressional meetings that that one <laughs> member um, had said the Capitol Police, they're just a step above mall cops. And so I think that they weren't trained for what happened that day uh, by any means. Um, but you just have that human side of you that, that tells you, hey, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't treat people that way. You know, and there could have been leaders, I believe, even if they didn't necessarily hold a title, there could have been leaders that stepped up that day to say to people, hey, we shouldn't 
be shooting into a peaceful crowd. We shouldn't be spraying pepper spray. You know, I think they just went on this high and they want to talk about why people reacted the way that they did, but they never want to talk about what provoked them. They want to, they don't want to look at the 10 minutes of video beforehand and say, Hey, this is why the crowd at the lower West Terrace tunnel was so mad was because there was an officer that was beating a protester that was unconscious lying on the ground. I almost want to put like a little pin in what we're talking about for one second, because you said something that I don't think a lot of people realize or understand. You said that the Capitol Police are one step above mall cops. Can we can we talk about that for just a little bit? I think it's uncomfortable for some people to hear, but I want to I want to address it. Yeah, absolutely. What what was what was the context around that 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 comment? Uh, we were talking about January 6th, and this person has worked up on Capitol Hill for 30 years. And we were just talking about, you know, there's so much that we've learned along this way, of course, of them operating with impunity, um, that they are the only ones that operate without um, uh, it's an outside organization coming to look at them and how they, they were truly set up that day. And um, I think that it's, you know, they should be trained in ongoing training for if something like this were to ever happen. And I think that's part of the reason that they don't want to release these tapes is because it wouldn't only show maybe the American people not acting correctly, but it wouldn't show the police officers acting correctly either. So it's interesting specifically that you, you talk about uh, Capitol Police. So for, I want to kind of educate our, our listening audience a bit about Capitol Police. And that's correct. They are not like the anything under the Department of Justice, which answers to Department of Justice rules, which are usually known as the Attorney General's guidelines. So those are use of force. That's the deadly force policy and so on. The Capitol Police answer to Congress. They are unique in the federal law enforcement sphere. And my experience with them is exactly what you just said. A step above mall cops, they're glorified federal security guards. They're about as capable as the Smithsonian Police Department which is a thing that exists, and you don't even need a high school diploma to, to work there. Now, I don't know what the backgrounds of all the people in Capitol Police are, but the ones that are smart enough, they go get another federal job somewhere else. The people that have worked there for their entire careers tend to be very uneducated, mediocre human beings, nice people. I'm not impugning their honor as human beings. I'm just saying they're not capable of getting a better law enforcement job in federal service because you can transfer that, that pension anywhere. And many of them are not, they're not federal agents in the way that we would expect them to be. They're below something like an ATF, which many people would call kind of at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to the way they hire as well. So it's, it's worth knowing that these people were not well-trained. They are not striving for excellence. This is not a place that is a premier job in the federal government. And that's what we saw on that day. We saw people, and you know, look, I don't have a ton of experience with less than lethal munitions, shooting things like uh, tear gas or pepper balls and things like that. I've never gotten any official training on using those devices. And yet, I think we can all look at it and go, if you fire it into a crowd and they have nowhere to go, they're gonna go forward, backward, and away from wherever you dropped all that gas. That's how crowd control munitions work. You're going to push people in a way. And what they did is they fired up behind the line and they pushed people into themselves because they had no idea that you're supposed to deny the area that you don't want them in. You don't put it where the people are and try and deny everybody everything. So it's just, it's so important, I think, that we understand what a, what a, what a failure that, that exposed on January 6th, this incapability of handling crowds. And, and that's actually not the people that usually handle crowds in Washington, D.C. either. Have you been kind of privy to that information? Uh, no, I did, you know, at one point speak to somebody who was at January 6th that was taking pictures and they kind of dissected the Capitol Police and how like you would zoom in on the Capitol Police that were standing outside and they were all in their uniform, but they had dreads hanging down their back. They were in uniform, but they were wearing Skecher tennis shoes. They were in uniform, but their badge was on their little neon vest. And you're like, that's just basic things that people know as, as a cop when you put on your uniform for the day, you wear steel-toed boots, your hair is up. You're, you don't put your badge on your little vest. It goes on your uniform. Just like basic things like that where you're like, this doesn't make sense. Well, they're not well-trained and they are overwhelmingly, like I said, kind of a lower tier on that level. Security guard is pretty pretty accurate for what they do. They, they're security guards for, for Congress. They're not investigators in the same way, although they have a small investigative unit. They're just not, they're just not police in the way that your, your husband would think about police, I would say. And so that's probably surprising to many people because they have uniforms. They look very police-like. That's one of the fun things we could say about them. 
Um, kind of sad. Ryan brought up the clip of you testifying. We we're going to play that real quickly, if that's cool. And we'll, uh, we'll kind of let people see that, and then uh, we'll come right back from that. Ryan, I'm ready when you are. According to 18 U.S. Code Section 4, it is a legal requirement that anyone who has knowledge of a felony committed within the jurisdiction of the United States must promptly disclose. Failure to do so may result in fines, imprisonment for a maximum of three years or both. Today, I want to officially state that I am reporting the deaths of Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne Boylan, Kevin Greeson, and Benjamin Phillips. It is crucial that these deaths are thoroughly investigated to ensure justice is served. I implore you to not remain passive observers, but to hold those responsible for these injustices accountable. It is imperative that we restore faith in our justice system and safeguard the rights of all individuals involved in January 6th. Thank you. How was that received by after the fact? Um, nothing has been done. <laughs> which I think is very ironic because they are the ones that held this field hearing to understand the things that these families are going through. And as terrible as this has been on our family and my husband himself, this is so much bigger than just us and how we are affected. Because at some point, whether it is two years from now, 20 years from now, whatever it is, at some point my husband's going to come home and we'll be able to piece our lives back together. But there are four families that will never be made whole again. And here we are two and a half years later with any no sort of investigation where their bodies were, you know, in, in Roseanne's case, her body was cremated. So they, the family can't even bring in a private investigator to look at what happened that day. And, and they just cremated her body immediately. And that's the one that I'm very familiar with. I do know um, that Ashley Babbitt's uh, family um, cremated her on their own and, and took her back home. But, you know, you have, and, and she was a veteran that was denied rendering of, of services and aid. Um, they, she couldn't even, her mother, uh, Mickey Whithoff, couldn't even find somewhere to bury her daughter because of how political this had been. And regardless of all of that, she was somebody that served our country certainly shouldn't have went to D.C. to be brought home in a box that day. But these four families, they need justice. We need justice for the January 6th defendants, but we also need justice for America because we do need to restore hope in our justice system because it is broken from A to Z. That's a really dark picture of this country. I don't think it's wrong. Can you kind of talk about how maybe your sense of what America is and what it means in 2023 has changed since 2021? Yeah, I think that um, this has exposed how how corrupt this system is, that the prosecution is allowed to lie to the grand jury to indict somebody. They are allowed to lie in opening and closing statements. And that's just wrong in itself and should be able to be thrown out as mistrials. But what the judges are allowed to say, what the prosecution is allowed to do, the judges will only allow some type of evidence and some witnesses when you are, are in defense mode, you should be allowed every one of those things to exonerate you or find the jury find you not guilty on things. But this is a kangaroo court at its finest. And, you know, there's so many facets of this that the, the prison system's broken. I think the U.S. Marshal system is broken because that's technically who they are. In the, they are U.S. Marshal custody until they are convicted, sentenced, and then sent to the, the BOP. Mm -hmm. And... It's just what the U.S. Marshals will allow. Um, you know, they're paid $400 a day um, to keep these inmates. So, of course, the jail wants to keep them, and they feed them terrible food. They certainly don't get $400 a day um, worth of care, whether it's medical or, or food or whatever it is, exercise, anything of that sort. And I think, you know, they say that January 6th defendants and their families might not be the messenger, but I absolutely believe we are. We might have been ignorant to this system and how broken it was prior to this but they certainly have people on their side fighting now. And I think that's the thing is like, this goes beyond January 6th because these guys could be exonerated and free tomorrow. The damage to their families have already been done. And then we have to make sure that they can't sweep this under the rug. We have to make sure that this is never gonna happen again in America. So in corrective actions, let's talk about uh, the foundation that you started and maybe if you see a way out of this, um, I think January Sixers are, are in a unique place. They're they're deep in the hole and they're and they're seeing America from a very different perspective than they probably started off. So maybe tell us about the foundation and then if you see there any sort of roads towards hope. 
Yeah, so we started Stand in the Gap Foundation, and there's a lot of different avenues with that, um, family services. So the guys were denied visitation in Washington, D.C. for two years, so they couldn't even see their loved ones, give them a hug, lay eyes on them because they didn't even have video visits. And so uh, Congressman Troy Nels went into the facility in January of 23, finally granted them in-person visitation, and they were so excited for about two hours. And then they realized I simply can't afford to fly my family from wherever in the country to Washington, D.C. to see me for an hour, two hours at max. And so they uh, we put together Operation Love Wins, where we've been able to fund over 25 families to go see their loved ones. Um, and that includes flights, transportation, hotels, food, everything under the sun that they don't have to pay anything. They can just simply enjoy their visit. And then, um, you know, as we talked about, we're not winning in the district court. We have to go to the circuit court, and that's where we're going to bring in appellant attorneys. Well, we're two and a half years into this, and a lot of people already spent so much money on private attorneys that they don't have the funds now to pay for appellant attorneys. And so we've partnered with a few very good appellant attorneys in D.C. that want to fight these cases, and we need funding to help that. But then long-term and stand in the gap is reentry and justice reform. So reentry, a lot of these guys, if, if the country doesn't turn around, are going to become uh, felons. They're going to be, they're known as being insurrectionist and domestic terrorists. And how can you ever get your life back on track? A lot of these guys were breadwinners of their families. And, you know, specifically in my husband's case, he'll never be able to go back into law enforcement. So he's going to have to go build a new career. And then as a felon, um, I, a lot of people don't know, I didn't even know this, that as a felon, you're not even allowed to rent an apartment. And so there's so many red, so much red tape around being a felon. Not only, you know, you can't vote, not have your guns, things like that, but even trying to get your life back on track. And so we need, you know, conservative businesses and churches to come alongside of these people and give them a chance because they are good people that have just been persecuted. And then long term is justice reform. And that's where it's not only about um, the January 6th defendants, you know, there was an issue not too long ago where they moved over half of the January 6th defendants out of their pod, put them on the other side of the jail in the um, where the normal D.C. residents are, and they weren't being treated well there. And so they were begging the January 6th defendants to get the word out so they could be treated better. And that just showed me that we do have a vessel to make this happen for these individuals. It's not only happening in D.C., but these um, facilities that are privately owned that are making money off these individuals. And I think something interesting that I heard the other day was um, the recidivism rate. So when when you are in jail, you get out. And then within three years is is their time period that they, they watch you for, right? And they, in uh, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the recidivism rate is usually 40 to 44%. That means within three years, you commit another crime and come back into the system. And um, when they did home confinement, they, uh, during COVID, because they didn't have enough bed space and they didn't have enough workers, the recidivism rate was 0.05%. And so that was a complete drastic change in the recidivism rate. And I think it's because even though they were on home confinement and serving their time, they were able to be involved with their families. They were able to give back to their communities in what ways that they could. And so we need to look at the statistics of why the American incarceration rate is so high, one of the highest in the world, and why there are no programs to get these individuals back to contributing members of society. It seems like God works in a lot of mysterious ways and sometimes in ways that we would not choose ourselves. This insight into the prison system has given a lot of people that came from very different backgrounds, whether it be law enforcement or productive citizens who had jobs and breadwinners and so on, a look behind the curtain of really how messed up and, and how failing our quote unquote criminal justice system is. It's really a, just a criminal punishment system, I think. And a lot of people are now seeing that. Do you feel like your husband and, and these other men are being used as, as vessels to teach America something at a, at a very dear cost, obviously, but something we, we didn't learn? Yeah, I believe that. I've always believed that this is bigger than we can ever fathom. And it's not just about us. As I said, I was in the corporate world, the entertainment industry prior to this. I never thought my life would look like this. But it's just the, the hard decisions that you have to make and say, okay, Lord, you put me in this position for a reason. Like, let me be a vessel. And as I said before, I think the government was nefarious before to, enough to do this. I just never thought that we would be in the position that we are. And I think this is exposed 
how not only how corrupt the government is, but how corrupt and broken the criminal justice system is. And, you know, in our Pledge of Allegiance, at the very end of it, we say justice for all. And it's a sad day in America when that is not true. We say liberty and justice for all. And there's a lot of people that don't have a sense of liberty in this country right now. They feel like they're being oppressed. They feel like the message of January 6th was stay home, shut up, don't do anything that steps out of line. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of Americans have obeyed that command. They are now willing to give up that liberty. What sort of uh, what sort of advocacy are you involved in that, that helps people you know, maintain that voice under that pressure? I think everybody, I say this when I speak a lot, everybody has a voice, you know, and, and there's a, either people have time or they have money most of the time, right? And so if they have time and they want to give back to their community, they just need to be pointed in the right direction of how they can help, you know, calls to action. And, and that's, that's what I get asked a lot is how I can, how somebody can help us. And I don't even know sometimes because our calls to actions change because their conditions change, you know, things change within the government, whatever it might be. Um, but everybody has a voice. And I think people in the community need to find their local sixer. There's 158 of them that are incarcerated across America. And there's 1,200 that have been indicted. And that number keeps rising. And there's it's been in all 50 states. And I think people need to rally around them in their local community and say, you know, you stood for us on January 6th. So we're going to stand for you and your family, whether it's to go talk at GOP events, go talk at churches. Because as people in, in the comments you said earlier, they don't even know about Roseanne Boylan. And what a sad day that is when they don't even know that somebody was murdered at the Capitol because it wasn't aired on TV. Like people need to go do their own research into things and, and they need to, it needs to come down to a local level because even though we want to fight this on all fronts, we're just not able to. And so we need leaders to step up and not let this country go to the wayside. I feel like you're handling this with a lot of grace. What, what sort of prayers do you do you offer up when you when you close your eyes at night? What, are they, what does it sound like when you talk to God? Um, you know, sometimes I'm really angry. <laughs> sometimes I cry through tears or I pray through tears, um, you know, because it's just you never know what the day is going to bring. And you have so much hope that you think America is the greatest country in the world. And that, that's been, you know, that statement to me it's just not true anymore because I've seen what it is. Could it be the greatest country in the world? It absolutely could. But when we do this to our own citizens, it's sickening and it's happening to good people. Um, I don't think it should happen to anybody good or bad. Um, and, but we need to treat people like humans, you know? And so we talk about it all the time. January 6th should not have happened. But I also believe that um, even if it did happen correctly and these guys were granted a change of venue, they were allowed evidence and they could have their witnesses, you know, whatever it might be look like in the true justice system, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. And so, you know, at night, I just pray for strength for the American people to to take hold of their country and what they feel in their heart is right, whether it's January 6th, COVID, child trafficking, the borders, whatever it might be that they feel in their heart that they're called to do, that the Lord will give them the strength to do it because we cannot fight this battle alone. We need American patriots to come alongside of us. I think it's so true. People have to pick one battle. We don't have the the wherewithal or the capabilities as, as sort of simple vessels to do all the things at all the times. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate you getting into it. Tell people where they can support the foundation and, uh, you know, where you want to be followed and, and how they can get in touch with you if they need to uh, give some support. Absolutely. So you can go to standinthegap.foundation, find out more about what we do, the different projects that we work on. Um, we're also, we've um, joined forces with For Ashley, which is Ashley Babbitt's mother's foundation to bring awareness. She holds a vigil outside of the DC jail every single night to let these men know that they're not forgotten. And so the, all of that is encompassed in, in Stand in the Gap Foundation. And then I'm also on Twitter under the Real J6 Sarah, where we will be giving updates about what happens in these uh, people's cases what's going on because you know a lot of the times their battle isn't over after they're sentenced and moved on it's still going on with appeals things are happening within their family and until each and every one of them goes home we will still be fighting i could appreciate all that uh thanks so much for getting up this morning with us and uh joining us on the kyle seraphin show giving that uh, that voice out folks you can follow those i put the uh, foundation stand in the gap dot foundation in the show notes so people can click right through there if you're listening on the audio show that's what you're missing out on and um Sarah, uh, you know, our prayers are with you. I really think this is a tough time, but and you guys are you're at the forefront of something very difficult in this country for sure. 
Thank you for having me on and allowing us to tell our stories. And, and just as you said, I think um, these men were chosen for such a time as this, as I believe that you were to stand up and, and go against everything that you thought was to be true. And we need more people like you. Courage is contagious. And I just pray that the American people rise up and we take our country back. I have the same prayer. Yes, I do. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day. Folks, you've been listening to the Kyle Serafin Show here, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas. It's uh, coming up on 1030 in the morning right now, which means it is 930 here in Texas, America. Our chat has been quite lively, including a rumble rant from Kay Quiet saying thanks for bringing this story or attention to this abuse. It is abuse. It's abuse of all of our systems. This was a system that we thought we could trust, and it is no longer something that most people will trust, whether you're someone like uh, Garrett O'Boyle, who's sitting out there in the chat and knows that the FBI could come for you, or whether you are a law enforcement officer working, doing your job in America and showing up, doing what you are allowed to do, uh, exercising your First Amendment right to protest and trying to protect fellow officers. Really Difficult times, difficult story to hear, but I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Um, I want to read one of our five-star views. This show is for you. This education, this uh, this transfer of knowledge is for all of you. And those of you who have been joining us have been leaving us significant numbers. We're almost at 700 five-star views. This one is written by Norman Biggie. If you want to throw that up on the screen, Ryan says, learn so much. Kyle and his guests are a gusher of information on things I would never even think of. Highly entertaining and useful. We do try to entertain, but we also try to educate you all. And I'm very appreciative that you guys spend your time with us every morning. This show does grow because you guys are sharing it. So please do share it on social media. Please share it. If you're watching us on Rumble, you can share the, the Rumble video. If you're listening on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, or on Apple, by all means, share that with your fellow friends, your people who want to know about the truth that's out there. So thanks so much for joining us on that. Give uh, Ryan Matta a follow at Ryan Matta Media, M-A-T-T-A. Thanks, Ryan, for doing the production. There he is right there in the corner. We're in the beanie. He's doing a Tim Pool impression today. And uh, folks, don't forget to like <laughs> this as you leave. There's about 600 of you watching this live at the moment on Rumble. Give us a thumbs up there. Make sure that thing turns green. And uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you guys again tomorrow with another interview. And uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash kyleserafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and Truth Social at Kyle Serafin.